Hey there, comedy fans. It's an all-new Comedy at the Carlson cast. Get more information and subscribe at carlsoncast.com. On the line today, it's Conrad Thompson, everybody. We're very excited. Today's episode is, of course, brought to you by Sapori Cafe and Catering. It's Rochester's favorite spot for lunch and any of your catering needs. Find them on Facebook and Instagram at Sapori Rochester. Also, Three Heads Brewing are, of course, the makers of Rochester's favorite beer. Remember, do good things and always be kind. Now here's your host. He's riding out the pandemic with his two best friends, Skittles and Shame. It's Vinny Paulino. Hey everybody, thanks for joining us for another episode of Comedy at the Carlson Cast. We are live. I'm joined by Brian Ball. Hey Brian, how you doing over there, bud? Pretty good. How you doing, man? Uh, doing really, really good. We have a very special guest on the line, a friend of the club, a man who really needs no introduction, but I'm going to give it to him anyway. It's the Alabama Dream. It's our friend Conrad Thompson. Hey, Conrad, how you doing, man? Hey, man, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, thank you. Thank you for taking the time. I know uh, you are a very busy yeah, guy. Very much. Five podcasts, a mortgage business. You got to be going out of your mind right now. No, actually, I have more time than ever because uh, I don't even know what day of the week it is. It all just runs together. So I'm taping podcasts at eight in the morning and two in the morning and three in the afternoon and Still managing to get all the mortgage work done too, so it's been uh, an interesting—I uh, don't know—two months now. Right. Well, yeah. For the uninitiated, uh, Conrad hosts five podcasts. Uh, he's been to the club two times. He's visited us at the Carlson. The first time was with his show, "Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard," and "83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff." And recently, uh, we had you scheduled to bring two of your other great co-hosts, Tony Schiavone and Jr., to the club. And then this whole COVID thing happened. And I feel like it's a little snake bit, man. It's a bit of a bummer. Yeah, it is. You know, it's it's fun because uh, we love the club and, and, and really appreciate all the hospitality. And you guys always take great care of us. And I was fired up about it. But when we announced the show the first time, we had no idea that AEW was going to debut their show just a couple of days after. So the guys really, both Tony and JR, were really concerned that, hey, man, we might not be able to give our all. You know, we, we, to the actual TNT broadcast for AW. So, do you think we could push this back? And I said, sure. So, you and I worked together and figured out, hey, when's AEW coming back to town and, and got it penciled in? And womp, womp, womp. Here came Corona. Yeah, yeah my stance. That would have been amazing. My stance on that was that was TNT's problem. If they didn't give it there all that night, I'm just. <laughs> <laughs> I don't work for TNT. Yeah, exactly. What is this crap? But, uh, it, it, I just. I just have to say before we get going, I know Vinny feels the same way, how elated I am that my voice is on the same voice with the Conrad Thompson's voice on the same podcast. Oh my God. I've listened to so many of your shows. Like, it's just cool to hear your voice in my headphones and know that I am talking to you. <laughs> I appreciate that, man. Thanks for listening. Thanks for digging it. And uh, thanks for having us on the show here. Well, That's all my kiss ass. I'm done now. Okay. No, no more ass kiss. And let's, let's talk about uh, <laughs> the stuff that people are really, really interested in. Conrad, this, you've had quite a strange trip here. You've been a wrestling fan since you were a little kid, and you've managed to turn it into not just like, uh, you know, a fun hobby of getting to do something with your friends. You've created something major. Like, you've created worldwide fame from just your love of wrestling. That's incredible. You realize that, right? <laughs> worldwide fame is probably a bit of a stretch okay but, but that's not that much of a stretch it is not that much of a stretch uh didn't you uh when you went to japan weren't you honored didn't you get a green jacket when you went to japan didn't they take care of you 
Like, bro, don't sit here and tell me that you don't think that that's accurate. Because when you have five shows, I mean, well, first off, let's start at the beginning here. You met Ric Flair through hiring him to do commercials for your mortgage company. Is that accurate? No, that's not completely accurate. He actually had an appearance uh, not too terribly far from here in uh, a little town called, uh, gosh, not Dalton. I forget. Somewhere in remote Georgia, like a rural area of Georgia, so not like Atlanta or whatever. And uh, I was friendly with the promoter and knew a bunch of the other guys who were on the show, and we just became fast friends. And fast forward, uh, you know, his son had just passed away. That's worth mentioning. Yeah. He would just text me on a Tuesday morning and say, hey, kid, want to go drinking? So, yeah, I would, you know, jump in yes. the car, ride <laughs> hours, and hang out with Rick Flair. So we drank enough during the day uh, that it became, uh, hey, you want to go uh, to this WWE show with me? Wendy can't go, and, and, and I want to have a traveling companion. I'm like, hell yeah, I want to go. So I became a tag-along in just a second. But, yeah, I would go to his house and watch football games, and he'd come to my house and watch the draft or whatever, and, we just headed off, and then a, a podcast happened. He got an offer, and I asked if I would come in and ask fan questions. I said yes, and I sort of became an accidental podcaster. It wasn't the plan, that's for sure. Now, that's where I first started hearing your magnificent voice, Conrad, was listening to Woo Nation. In fact, Brian and I, we had a, Brian and I are both comics. We did a road gig down to Florida, and we listened to, like, multiple episodes down there and just enjoyed yeah, the hell out of six. it. at least six. And, uh... It blows my mind that that's how the relationship started. Like, he would call you on a Tuesday and say, hey, let's go drinking, and you would drive six hours to go pick him up. Were they out of, like, DDs in Atlanta? Did he run through everybody? Uh, <laughs> no, he, he wasn't. He wasn't uh, I wasn't picking him up, and, and I didn't have a six-hour trip quite. But, yeah, it, it was essentially he was he was probably overdoing it at the time, and he was trying to cope with the loss of his son and yeah. uh, needed, needed a friend. And, you know, I don't know. I sort of became... Uh, the friend he needed in that time. And he was in Atlanta. He's from Charlotte, but Wendy, his girlfriend, lived in Atlanta. But, you know, she's still raising kids and had a real life. So there's a section of the day where she's got to go be mom. And he's looking for somebody to hang out with. And he didn't have to ask me twice. I jumped at the chance to to hang with the nature. I bet, I bet the nature boy's uh, Uber rating is not that high. You know, I'm not sure because uh, everything <laughs> Car service, and I'll never forget the first time someone sent him an Uber. They pulled up, and he they rolled the window down. And he said, "Mr. Flair," and he said, "Yes." And they said, well, "I'm your ride," and he starts laughing. He's like, "I'm not getting in a fucking Dodge." Uh, so <laughs> not familiar with how Uber worked. That it's just whoever's handy and has a car will come pick you up. He's used to no. You got to have a town car or a navigator or an Escalade. Right. That's hysterical. Yeah. Now, uh, <laughs> did you ever think about podcasting before that? Like, when he offered this to you to come on board with what he was doing, were, were you ever in thinking in the realm of broadcasting at all? Was that ever something that crossed your mind? No, not really. I mean, not from a podcast standpoint. I've, I've always been very friendly with, I shouldn't say always, since 2009, I became really friendly with a lot of radio DJs in, in Huntsville and Nashville and Birmingham, Chattanooga, and things like that. Because I advertise my mortgage company. So I started a type of advertising where it would be a live call-in spot that's almost like an island commercial. So it's not in the middle of a stop set. It's me talking to the jock about whatever's topical. You know, oh, Florida man, blah, blah, blah. Sure. We react to that news, and then I transition to a mortgage commercial. 
and that was a lot of fun. And so I kicked around the idea of maybe trying to, you know, buy a radio station and, and program it my own way with my buddies who were very successful in morning drive and afternoon drive, but I just felt like their sales teams were dropping the ball or they felt like they were. And we kicked that around, but then we weren't able to put a deal together. So it was never something I thought I would ever be on air for. I just really enjoyed, you know, audio entertainment. And when I had an opportunity to just sit in and ask fan questions and he dug it and CBS dug it and asked me to come back, I had fun. So it became a quick little, Hey, let's hop over to Atlanta and have some laughs and have a good time. And that's really all it was. And little did I know, I was sort of laying the groundwork for what would become a, a very big part of my life. Well, it's fascinating to me on a lot of levels because it grew. It obviously grew. But the way that it grew, like, you know, you meet Bruce Pritchard and you he tells you a story about the radicals and you were so captivated by it that you're like, this has to be a podcast. If you hadn't have done that stuff with Ric Flair, you yeah. never would have thought about that. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, one of the challenges I realized early on with Rick is, man, if we're doing this interview format, I've got to find 52 different guests a year and I've got to make them interesting. And so on the back end, I'm, I'm such a business analytics nerd. I'm monitoring where the downloads are and we'd have a hall of famer like Lawrence Taylor on. I mean, he may have invented a WrestleMania, but we're talking about one of the greatest football players that ever lived and yeah, downloads yeah. just tank. And then it was the same thing would happen when we had Dana freaking white on. I mean, Dana white, are you kidding? And the downloads aren't there, but they're there. Yeah, for both Greg very Denver. interesting guys. Right. And so same thing with, um, Darius Rucker, those three are our lowest downloaded podcasts that we ever did. And those are big time guests. Meanwhile, we have the nasty boys or Greg the hammer on and they're through the roof. I don't get it. So I decided, you know what? I can't be reliant on this format. Uh, it's too challenging to, to chase a new guest and, and make it interesting every week. And a lot of times the folks who are willing to come on have something to promote and they're not just doing your show. They're doing 14 others. So right. yeah. if Al had a new book come out, he's not just doing Rick's show. He's also doing Stone Cold's and Chris Jericho's and JR's. And well, so if you're a listener at home, you're like, well, there's four different Al Snow interviews in the last two weeks. Uh, so I wondered if I'm not first, I'm last. I just didn't like that. And I didn't think it was really the content that people wanted instead of, you know, Hey, how, how you doing, man? Well, how'd you get in the business? Like that just felt sort of paint by numbers formulaic. I wanted to go long form on one singular topic. And it wasn't until I heard Bruce talk about one singular incident that you referenced this, the, the radicals jumping ship from WCW to the WWF that I was like, Oh my gosh, this is it. And I've sort of ever since equated it to like, I grew up with my mom reading me a story before bedtime when I was a little kid. And we had a series of books called golden books. And I had like a little trunk. And I'd go pick out a golden book and I'd yeah, say, Hey yeah. mom, a story. Well, that sort of became what this is. Hey Bruce, tell me a story. Yeah. And so I would pick the story and he would tell it. And it was like, Oh, this is gold because you know what? The weird thing about content like this is if we're covering WrestleMania that happened, I don't know, a month ago. It's already out of date because it's a month old. But if we go back and we talk about WrestleMania from 1992, man, that's never going to be old. And that's just nostalgia. And once that all clicked, it was like, I think I've got a format that works and I haven't deviated a lot from it. It's been a lot of rinse, lather, repeat ever since. Is Bruce, yeah, no, no need to. Is Bruce Pritchard the best storyteller you've ever been around? Yeah, he's definitely the best storyteller. I mean, th there are other great storytellers, but but he's by far the best. I enjoy the, the wit and timing of uh, Arn Anderson, but I don't think there's another storyteller like Bruce out there. 
you really yeah, and just the way he he sneaks in the impressions, just the just exactly the right amount, just yeah. like when they're needed. It's really funny. So, how hard was it to convince Bruce to do a podcast? Because at the time he wasn't working for WWE, I'm not 100 percent sure what he was doing at the time. But to get him to get back into the wrestling world in that in that way, was it hard? Was did it take a lot of convincing? I mean, he just didn't think a that anybody wanted to hear from him um, because the narrative on Bruce Pritchard had had been, oh, he's an office stooge and blah, blah, blah. He's lazy or whatever the dirt sheets would write. That's what it became because he wasn't actively combating that. And I really wanted people to know the Bruce that I knew who was super funny and had great timing and could tell a great story and a genuine person. And they didn't know that, but he was like, nah, they don't care. Nobody wants to hear me talk. And in addition to that, he didn't think that you could make any money in podcasting. And I said, well, let's not worry about that. I've got another idea. So I showed him a different way for him to monetize it. And that was through selling shirts. And my, my wrinkle or my twist was just call everybody after they order a shirt. And very quickly with the popularity of the show rising, he went from, I don't know, near the bottom of the list on pro wrestling tees to top 10. And he wasn't even an in-ring performer. He, hell, he wasn't even in the business. And he was up there behind Bullet Club, obviously, and Young Bucks and all those guys. But still... He was top 10 and I decided, Hey, this would be a great way for me to grow the mortgage company. And then I started to do some research and realized, Hey, wait a minute. I think you can make money in podcasting. We've just got the wrong partner. So we found the right partners and it's been hugely successful ever since. Well, I want to tell you the thing that I found to be the most brilliant, um, and a little behind the scenes story for those of you listening, uh, Carlson fans, it's because of the t-shirt sales that I was able to talk to Bruce to book you guys. You know, do you know that? Yeah. <laughs> no, I didn't know that. I bought a t-shirt just to talk to Bruce. I had a, you did a promotion. Whereas if you buy a t-shirt, Bruce Pritchard will call you and say, thank you. And I waited for, I bought a shirt and I waited for the call. And I was like, hi, Bruce. Nice to meet you. Really would love to book you at our club up in Rochester. Can we make that happen? And he was like, well, yeah, man. And he gave me the email and we ended up working it out. It was unbelievable. That's awesome. Well, I mean, and those t- those T-shirts, Vinny and I were talking before. You're like the slogans on those T-shirts are like part of the lexicon now. Like Vinny and I, even about comedy shows, we'll say like, "Who booked this shit?" You know, just like just the slogans that you guys pick for the T-shirts and the little catchphrases you put like into the show, just are part of like wrestling fan speak now. Well, I appreciate that, man. You know, it's it's fun because we had a lot of fun sort of putting the shirts together and the whole concept, and then. In time, it it grew to this crazy thing that who would have ever guessed? You know, poor Tommy Young. Those t-shirts, poor Tommy Young in the t-shirts. I don't know about that. I mean, listen, it's got a picture of Barbarian. It says Tommy Young. There's nothing offensive, but we've got way more offensive (laughs) shirts. Uh, That's true. That is very, very true. So at what point? LowestRules.com. So then you get Shivani involved. How do you get, yeah. you just say to Shivani, hey, look at what I'm doing with Bruce. We get along. Look at, jump on board with this ship. And you've been like adding links to the train for a while. And I got to ask you, man, like, how are you possibly physically able to do this many shows? Like, how far in advance are you recording to be able to keep up on the demand and the schedule that you have with us? Uh, usually the week ahead, you know. So, like, uh, for next week, I've already got Eric Bischoff's show in the can. I'm going to tape JR in the morning. I'm going to tape R in this afternoon. I'll probably tape Tony sometime tomorrow. And at some point today, I'm going to tape Bruce for tomorrow. Bruce is still 
the Scraggler because of his crazy and, and super hectic WWE schedule. And obviously they've had a lot of change going on right now and they're limping along because people are working at home as well. So it's been a real challenge for Bruce, but the others I can usually get ahead. And, and normally I stay about a month or two ahead as far as planning what the shows are going to look like. But since we've all been stuck at home, uh, I've mapped out the shows through the end of the year. So I know exactly where I'm going to be on what day and, uh, the staff that supports all of this around me, whether it's people who help with research or graphics or, or Twitter or whatever, uh, they have an, uh, some insight now of, of where we're heading and they can get ahead to. All right. Level with me. The podcast, if you had to pick a percentage of how much it contributed to Bruce going back to WWE, what do you think? Um, 90. Okay. That's what I thought. Yeah, good. Good. Yeah. I'm happy. That makes me very happy to hear. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I mean, to be clear, I'm not suggesting for a moment that Bruce only went back because of the podcast, but I am saying Bruce's name was in the wrestling conversation again yeah. because of the podcast. I mean, he wanted nothing to do with wrestling, but the podcast blew up and then TNA booked him. Yeah. And yeah. You know, when that yeah. came to an end, MLW wanted him. And when that came to an end, WWE wanted him and he really belonged in WWE the whole time. Yeah. Uh, he just needed, uh, to change his thinking a little bit. And he credits me, you know, right or wrong with helping sort of change his thinking. Cause I would say things like, why not? What's the worst thing that could happen? And I've really lived my life through that. Like before I make a major decision, I would ask myself two things. What a, what's the worst thing that could happen if I do this and B, if that happens, can I live with it? And so when I really pressed that upon him. He was like, okay, why not? I'll try the podcast. Okay, why not? I'll call people and thank them for buying a t-shirt. Okay, why not? We'll drive traffic to savewithproofs.com. Or, okay, why not? I'll go work for TNA and just see what it is. Or, okay, why not? I'll try MLW. Well, eventually it became, okay, why not? And now we freaking run SmackDown on Fox. It's incredible. It's an incredible yeah. story. So we owe you a lot of thanks for that, too. Yeah, he became Bruce freaking Pritchard again, you know? Yeah. It so, hey, Conrad, we got a bunch of questions from, uh, from our viewers here. Do you mind if I sh shoot a couple at you? Fire away. All right. This one came from my friend Will Carroll. He wants to know, in your opinion, who is the scariest wrestler in the history of wrestling? Yeah, that's hard to say. Um, you know, I mean, if you're thinking from like a little kid lens, you got to think somebody like Abdul the Butcher. Sure. Or maybe Bruiser Brody. But then as an adult, you probably wonder, you know, maybe it's somebody like New Jack. Or, yeah, I don't know. I mean, as an adult, it's really hard to sort of pin down. But as a kid, I just imagine, like, meeting Abdul the Butcher. My goodness, that would be frightening. Yeah. <laughs> I'd still be a I'd be scared now. Though, yeah. I'm 45. <laughs> yeah. Hey, listen, this is a good question. This one came in from Ryan Montana. Conrad, you produce shows with many talents who are now involved with different federations. Which one are you biased to watching and favoring right now and why? As far as which federation? Yeah, like what, what, or, what, what do you yeah. like to watch the most? Are you biased towards anything? WWE, AEW, MLW, New Japan? What, what do you like the most? It's been really hard to watch any of it since COVID-19. It's uh, I find it very, very difficult to watch wrestling with no crowd. I mean, don't get me wrong. I enjoyed the empty arena match as a one-off back in the day with, with Funk and Lawler, but sure. doing a show like that is very, very challenging. That being said, I did think they did a, 
I do think they did a tremendous job with WrestleMania. I know it was kind of controversial at the time of what should we do. Yeah, that was not that was not nearly as bad as I thought it was going to be. I agree. I think a lot of people went into it with really, really low expectations and had decided it was going to suck before they ever gave it a chance. And I didn't do that. I went the other way and said, you know what? They've had a lot of time to get this right. And I think it's going to be a good show. And it was. And I, I left both nights feeling like, man, that was pretty cool. So I'm yeah. glad that, that they got that. But at the same time, the, the empty arena TV, it's just not translating the same for me. Um, you know, if I had to pick what I enjoy watching the most, I would probably say whatever Tony Schiavone is calling because <laughs> I have a connection to the guy on commentary. And, you know, when the shows are live back in the day when they were live, it's fun to text and bust his balls during the show. And I don't do that with JR. I probably could, but it's so much fun to, to bust Tony's balls during a show. That makes it more enjoyable for me. But, you know, I got to be a home. <laughs> I don't miss any segment with, uh, with Charlotte Flair on it. I think uh, she's done a remarkable job with NXT. I thought her and Rhea Ripley had either the best or, or the second best match all WrestleMania weekend. It was very good who were doubting, you know, what that match would be because Charlotte has her fair share of haters. And I think up to that point, a lot of people had questions about, Hey, what can Rhea really do? And maybe that would have been different on the big stage than it was at the performance center. But I thought it was a great match. And, and I think they should be commended for, for putting that together such a great match under those circumstances. A hundred percent. I can't argue with that at all. Um, this question came in from Vinny in Rochester. Hey, uh, <laughs> The question is, there was some interesting stuff, speaking of Shivani, when uh, AEW was first starting out before he signed with them, that uh, Bruce was trying to get him to go back to WWE. Is that accurate? And how did that kind of pan out from your angle? I started up. It's wrong to say, but that's what, I mean, that's the reality. I knew that, uh, I knew that Tony Khan and Tony Shivani really liked, or not Tony Khan, but uh, Tony Khan and Cody Rhodes really liked Tony Schiavone, and I knew that as soon as they signed Eric, um, Bruce wanted to, to help pull up Tony Schiavone as well. And so when one of those conversations progressed, I told the other one, and that makes me a bad person, but that's what happened. And so, yeah, he had, he had offers from both places and, and conversations and interviews with both places. And in the end, he made the right choice. You know, he's back where he belongs. And yeah. I think a lot of it came down to, you know, no matter what, he was going to have to do a lot of commuting to Connecticut. And that's a stark contrast to getting your car and go five miles down the road to DDPY and do your production for AW. It's a much, um, it's much more like Crockett promotions. Sure. It's a smaller company, direct line mm -hmm. of communication with the boss, not a lot of middle management, not a lot of red tape, not a lot of procedure. There's not a necessary way like this is our way and this is how we do it. They're still figuring all that out and he could sort of help pave the way and become the voice again of, of a whole new set of childhoods, uh, you know, because he's the voice of our childhood. And now there's a whole new generation who can say the same thing about him and it's on a Turner station and he absolutely loved Dusty Rhodes and now he's working with both of his sons and it just checks all the boxes and you know, it, he loves the sports aspect because let's not forget uh, Tony Khan owns a soccer club and a football team. And that is very much in Tony's blood. So the idea that maybe one day, possibly potentially under a different circumstance, 
he might have an opportunity to do some stuff in a, in a ball club capacity, which is how we got in wrestling to begin with. Yeah. You know, he came from Crockett's minor league team and then boom, he's, he's on TV with Ric Flair. That's just a cool story. So he made the right choice for him and his family. And I don't think there's any doubt about that. Seeing what he's doing on dynamite. Yeah. Right there's now. absolutely no shame in that. And in your opinion, do you feel like dynamite kind of feels like where nitro would be naturally had it survived? It does kind of feel like it just kind of picked back up like 20 years later. Am I, am I crazy with that? Yeah, I don't know. I, I'll be honest. I don't draw any correlation between the two. Okay. I think the presentation is different enough. I understand the Tony Schiavone comparison, and I understand that it's on TNT, but I think it's so different. It's such a different approach to wrestling. Um, it's just a different time. And and I try very hard not to do that, and maybe, maybe if I wasn't so actively trying not to compare it to that, uh, I would feel that way, but I always feel like when I compare something today from something of the past, I just find myself disappointed in today's product. And it's not because the work isn't as good or the presentation isn't as good or any of that. It's just because I know that I'll look at my past through rose colored glasses. So I'll remember something being great and then go watch it and be like, hey, it was, it was okay. It was pretty good. So I just feel like we all sort of favor what we grew up on. And if we were to watch like our favorite Hulk Hogan match from 1990 right now, we would say, ah, oh, it was okay. But man, in 1990, you couldn't tell me he wasn't the best wrestler that ever lived. No. Yeah. Exactly. Some stuff holds up, some stuff doesn't. So Yeah. And, and I, I think that's unfair to compare it to, to Nitro just because of that. Because, you know, if I do that, I'm going to say, well, but Sting's not coming down from the rafters. Well, there is no Sting. Like, that's not a thing. And <laughs> it's something different. And so I can't compare it that same way. And that that's worked for me. Hey, uh. Let me ask you this question. You, you've been doing the podcasting for years now. You, you're very good at it. You have a great rapport with your uh, broadcasting partners. Uh, what was it like for you doing live shows? Did that feel good to you? Was that natural when you go out there in front of an audience? Or was that intimidating to you at all? No, it wasn't intimidating. I mean, it, it was a little nerve-wracking when they looked to me to sort of steer the ship. So it's up to me to fill this you know, hour and a half or two hours or whatever and, and I'm sort of the, uh, the John Stockton and they're the Carl Malone. I've got to get the ball where it needs to be to make them look funny yeah. <laughs> than in a live show. So there is some pressure there, uh, especially when it's the first time we've done it. So the first time we did a live show, me and Bruce, we spent a lot of time working on formats and going back and forth and all that. And then we get out there and just had fun. It was, I mean, we hit most of the stuff, but not all of it, but we took it to another level for the shows that followed it like two, three, four, and five. But then after that, it just became sort of second nature and we could quote unquote, call it in the ring. And we'd have ideas afterwards, like something funny would happen on the show. And I was like, Hey, we should incorporate this or that. But it was sort of, you know, that same process with everybody. So when I, you know, first did a show with Tony Schiavone and first did a show with Eric Bischoff, there was a lot of prep up front. And then we sort of find a rhythm, but with Jr, he would, he wasn't having it. Jr's like, Nope, not doing any of that. Connie, just going to do a Q and a and just call it in the ring and we'll be fine. But my struggle is, what if the questions suck? If the questions suck, I've got to have some things that I can pivot to that are going to be good. Right. Uh, because I don't want people in the audience to, to think, well, everybody got to ask their question but me, and their question sucked. Thanks for taking my $35 or whatever. Well, I don't want to do that. I want you to go home with what I, what I think is some good shit, pal. So i, I got to have some crutches. Now, uh, That's kind of like a comedian that relies on crowd work. you got to rely on the crowd a little bit. Sure. Absolutely. I think that's very wise, though, going into it, knowing that, you know, sometimes the questions that you're going to get 
are not going to be good and you have to be prepared. And I give you a lot of credit for knowing that because a lot of people don't, you know, I, we've had some wrestlers and, and people in the business come and do uh, Q and A's and stuff like that. And man, it's nothing compared to the show that you guys put on you. You guys entertain. You're some real entertainers, man. You should be proud of that. Well, I appreciate that. You know, some of it is we were trying to come up with concepts for our live show and I came up with heads on sticks, like pardon the interruption. Bruce is already doing all these voices, but what if he held it up? And then it becomes a cue and a prop for the rest of the show once the, the crowd sort of in on the gag. And, you know, some of our early shows when we had the mesothelioma commercials that we would have to insert three or four times a show. Right. We would <laughs> wait say, oh, wait, you know what? I just realized it's about that time. And we'd put our mics down and just play the meso commercial through the speaker. The crowd loves it. So we've created some sort of cues where, you know, if we say, huh, and things like that, they just know what it is. And so when they hold, when he holds up the Terry Funk head, they know he's going to one line that Terry Funk always says on our show. And it just became, I don't know, Pavlovian. Well, that's the fun thing about wrestling fans is like, they know where you're going. Like wrestling fans are really in tune with that kind of stuff. They know the catchphrases if they know anything, yeah. you know? Absolutely. Now, yeah. Like you said, it's Pavlovian. It's very call and response, the wrestling community. Yes. Did you, uh, well, uh, let me backtrack here. I have another question from a viewer watching right now. He'd like to know what is your favorite piece of memorabilia you have at the Conradison? Oh, it's the big one. gold belt. It's always going to be the big gold belt. It's the most important belt in wrestling history. I mean, don't get me wrong. My favorite design is the dual plated winged Eagle from like WrestleMania four. So the heavyweight world title that macho man won that night. Uh, was gold and nickel, and it's called the quote-unquote winged eagle. I think it's the most beautiful belt ever. However, they made a bunch of those, like a bunch. Uh, and so, you know, you saw them with different colored straps, but also different colored medals and uh, lots of different cuts over the uh, the top and different color straps. and I mean, just lots of adjustments. And there's probably, I don't know, 20, 25 of those over the years. Mm -hmm. But the big gold belt, there was one until the very end. Uh, and then they made a couple of cast copies when nobody was watching WCW. And the one that uh, popped up in WWE is the one that Booker T uh, beat Scott Steiner for in the last Nitro. But that is not the original Big Gold Belt. The original Big Gold Belt is in my office. And that is the one that, you know, Flair took to the WWF and, you know, ultimately had to pay back. And it's just there's such history with that. You know, it was originally sort of the flare belt, but it was also in another generation, the Hulk Hogan belt, because he spray painted it not once but twice and played air guitar with it. And it's a who's who of who's had it from Sting to Dusty Rhodes to Ricky Steamboat to Sid Vicious and Bret Hart and even Chris Benoit. So, yeah, that's my favorite piece of memorabilia. And it's not close. You know, that's unbelievable. I didn't realize you had the belt. That's the belt. That is. That's incredible. Yeah, that is. That's the belt that the NWO spray painted black and when they spray painted red. And yeah, that is the belt. How do you even like find that to buy it? Did it go for auction somewhere? Well, that's the weird thing about belts is it's like this underground railroad where you have to appreciate most of this stuff is not something that we're supposed to own. Right. Technically, somebody else once upon a time owned this and then it just popped up somewhere it didn't belong. And then you made a guy with a shoebox full of cash and now it's yours. Uh, so yeah, it was one of those deals where I, 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 man, I managed to buy the original Ric Flair nameplate off the original belt. Well, the original belt was misspelled. It was R I C K Flair. And there's been a, a rumor out there that they sent it back to the factory. That's not true. 
it was in the Flair household in a junk drawer, but when they moved houses, I don't know, in the late 90s, nobody thought anything of it, and it's probably trash somewhere now. But the RIC Flair nameplate, I bought from a private collector in 2013, and he sold it to me under one condition. He said, if we ever get the opportunity to photograph the actual belt with this nameplate on it, I want to write a book about it. Would you consider loaning me the nameplate to reunite it with the belt if I ever find the belt? And I said, sure, you can come take the pictures at my house. And he said, wait a minute, you have the big gold belt? And I said, no, but if I found the freaking nameplate, how hard can it be? So I started my search, started my hunt. I found the belt. I made an offer. I got it. And I sent him a text, I don't know, a month after I got the nameplate and said, hey, you can come do your book anytime. I have it now. That's incredible. <laughs> That's incredible. That's, I mean, yeah, I couldn't argue with that. If I had that in my house, that, that would be the crown jewel of the home in a mile, by a the, mile. The, the and now point. we've learned that you can get spray paint off of gold. Yeah, here's the thing. It didn't come that way. Like when I got it, there was no spray paint on it. But if you like really go over it really close, you can see little specks of, of red and black paint that even when WCW tried to refurbish it and, and just, you know, sort of bring it back to life, there's still a little bit of, uh, of, of spray paint remnants on there. Oh, that makes uh, it even better. What's fun about the, the whole belt thing, though, the other piece that I don't think I've ever talked about is when I got the belt, it was on black leather. Because they, they re-leathered it in the fall of 1999. But the original belt had a different color. It was like a reddish brown. Mm -hmm. So when when Flair had it and Dusty had it and Sting had it, even Goldberg, it was like a reddish brown. But I managed to find the guy who re-leathered it. And I reached out to him. And as luck would have it, he knew exactly where the original 1986 piece of leather was. He didn't throw it out. He put it in a piece of Tupperware somewhere in his garage. He sent me a picture an hour after I, we had a conversation and said, is this it? And I said, yes. And I, I PayPal'd him a bunch of money and he overnighted it. And now I've got the original and the replacement big gold belt strap. It, it couldn't have been any more wow. lucky than to find both of those. So now you've got the actual leather through its entire history. That's insane. You should have a museum, man. You should have a museum. Just out of curiosity, number one, that's like the ultimate. I can't argue with that at all. What's number two, you think? And your collection. Well, the thing I'm most excited about lately is I got the um, the nitro like sign that was on the announce desk, or maybe it was at the top of the truss. But they had a few of these that were large enough to be backlit, uh, so when you got a shot of it, the word Monday could like shine through. Uh, and from from where I'm, what I could see on the back, it was either on the front of the desk or perhaps at the top of the truss over the ring entrance. But either way, I've got one of the original WCW Monday Nitro signs. That's awesome, man. Uh, another question came in from uh, Michael Phillips. He wants to know, uh, I've heard people ask you this question before, but I like this twist. So good on you, Mike. Uh, who is your 1980s NWA Mount Rushmore? Oh, that's a great question. You know, uh, Obviously, Dusty Rhodes is on there. Sure. Without question, Ric Flair is on there. Man, it gets really hard after that because, you know, Sting didn't become the man until 1990. It's really easy to go Road Warriors. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, the Steiners really came into their own after that, but I almost want to put them in there. It's hard not to include Arn Anderson. I don't know. I guess I would go Dusty and Terry Funk, Ric Flair, and Arn Anderson. Okay. That's solid. That's not bad. Can't argue with it. 
Uh, so, Conrad, I want to thank you very much for your time today. I know you're, uh, you're a busy guy. I know that there's lots of things you could be doing. There's belts to be polished. Uh, I just want to say thanks, man. It's been a great having you at the club, and I really hope that we are able to work this out. I know that uh, we don't know what's going to happen with wrestling and when AEW is going to get to Rochester, but uh, I'm just hoping that when it does finally happen, we are able to get uh, JR and Tony to the club and uh, you as well, and we could have a good old time. Well, let me assure you this. We will be back at Comedy at the Carlson, and when Bruce gets fired you know, very soon, uh, we'll be back with them. <laughs> There are definitely going to be more dates where I'm, I'm hanging out with you guys at comedy at the Carlson for all of my pods. Orange never been there. Uh, Tony's never been there. JR's never been there. And, uh, well, Eric and Bruce are both going to be looking for something to do sooner or later. So yeah. we're not, done. we will be there again. And, and you guys are without question, one of our favorite places to go do a show. Well, so thanks for having us. And thanks for having me today. Yeah, man. No Thank problem. Uh, listen, last question. How many Rolls Royces do you have? Not a fleet, you know. I don't know where this whole thing comes from, where there's a fleet of Rolls Royces. But they also say that I have uh, wings of the house and service elevators, and none of that's real. It's all make believe. All right. But you have a Rolls Royce, though, right? Uh, is this an IRS audit? I don't know what to answer <laughs> all here. Right, all right, all right, <laughs> all right. Conrad Thompson, folks, make sure you fit, find Conrad on uh, Twitter. At Hey Hey, it's Conrad and uh, SaveWithConrad.com, of course. And uh, folks, if you like wrestling or even just remotely interested in wrestling, you know, I know this is a show where we talk about stand up a lot. This is a cool little thing for Brian and I because we really love wrestling. We're big fans. Uh, yeah. These podcasts are for you. Just go check them out. Like, if you're into, we're into wrestling in the 90s, the Attitude Area, even in the 80s, the 70s, there is something for you. Uh, with Conrad's podcast. So make sure you check those out. And uh, Conrad Thompson, take care, my friend. All right. Thanks, man. Appreciate you guys very much. No problem. Thank you. We'll talk soon.